If you would, turn to 2 Peter. Let's look at this text. 2 Peter. Uh, This is probably one of the most obscure books, this and Jude, in the entire New Testament canon. You'll find very few, if you go to the Evangelical Theological Society or the Society of Biblical Literature, the who's who, you'll be hard-pressed to find a paper presented on 2 Peter or on Jude. They're there, but everyone wants Matthew or Romans, you know, or Luke. But when it comes to 2 Peter, it's an obscure book, and it has a whole host of issues which we're going to address. Instead of just diving into the text uh, this morning, and we will, a couple verses, I think it's important that we have an overview of the, kind of the landscape. What, what is this letter, this book that we're looking at? What's going on? And so I want to start at 2 Peter chapter 1, just the first two verses today. And then we're going to jump back and kind of do an overview and why in the world are we studying this book? I mean, Romans, that's got great theology. Luke loved the action and the life of Jesus. Why 2 Peter? Uh, we're we're going to answer that. <clears throat> but let's look at 2 Peter 1.1. From Simon Peter, a slave and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have been granted a faith just as precious as ours. May grace and peace be lavished on you as you grow in the rich knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. I mentioned in the opening paragraph the reason why I've selected these two books. And that is, excuse me, this is awful. The reason being is that I do not think any two books have more relevancy for where we are as a culture than these two. I put in the paragraph there, doubt is applauded in our society. Uh, We live in a postmodern world. I'm not telling you anything new. The core of the Christian faith is being questioned and reevaluated, the core. Not uh, not these little, you know, exactly when is it pre-trib or mid-trib, and if you don't know what that means, that's all right. Uh, But whether Christ rose from the dead, these are the questions we're now asking as well as, as I mentioned, the traditional values of morality are eroding. Sound familiar? This book addresses those very issues. I was reading uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a pastor in England many, many moons ago, and he led the church out of World War II, and he wrote a, uh, well, he gave a series of sermons that have been put to to text to, uh, in a book form. And the preface, he says, this book is so timely for us. <laughs> well, that's typical of God's word, but I, I do believe this book has much to say to where we are. But to understand it, let's, let's j- jump back a little bit and do what we call a little bit of an introduction and look at the, the, the authorship, the date, the occasion, because that's gonna shape our understanding of how this book has been penned. So as you look under letter A of your notes, I have the author. And our author, he identifies himself from the get-go, doesn't he? Who is it? (laughs) Simon Peter, right? He gives us both names, lest you forget who he is. And yet, this book is the most challenged of all the New Testament books by scholars. The majority believe Peter is not the author. Now, I do. Um, And I want to give you some reasons why, if you pick up any commentary, they're going to have to wrestle with authorship. But understanding that it's Peter is very important. First Peter is not as questioned as much. 
it drips with the grace of God. You expect that from this firecracker that put his foot in his mouth more times than not uh, and had to be restored at the end of Christ's ministry here on earth. But when you get to 2 Peter, it's vastly different. So let me give you some reasons why uh, it's questioned. Ooh, it's questioned and then why uh, we would argue that it is Peter. The, the first argument against 2 Peter is that it doesn't read like 1 Peter. Any able-bodied Greek student who, who studies 1 Peter and looks at 2 goes, no, they are vastly different. In fact, there's over 60 words that occur in 2 Peter you won't find anywhere in the New Testament. Uh, we call that a hapax legomena. And, and that's, a, that's very unusual. And they're saying, no, that, that just doesn't smack of someone you would expect that wrote 1 Peter. It doesn't resemble Peter's sermon and Acts. There's just no similarity here. Well, I think there's a couple reasons why that is the case. First of all, 2 Peter is unique. Uh, we're going to look at this, but the guy's on his deathbed. Look at chapter 1. Just turn over to verse 12. It says, Therefore I intend to remind you constantly of these things, verse 13, as I, in, the, in this tabernacle, that's my body, consider it right to stir up you in this way to remind her, since I know my tabernacle will soon be removed. Because our Lord Jesus revealed this to me. When did Jesus reveal that he's going to die? We have it in the text. Where is it in Scripture? John, John 21, right? Remember Apostle John's a little concerned about, or Peter's concerned about John, and, and Jesus said, Peter, shut up. <laughs> we'll deal with you. And they're going to take you. In fact, I think he's referring to um, his crucifixion, Peter's. And so uh, chapter one later, I mean, we're not even into the book that much. And Peter's saying, listen, I'm about to die. I, kn I know that my death is imminent. It reminds me of 2 Timothy, Paul's last letter as well. And 2 Timothy does not read anything like Paul's other writings. You would expect this. They're on their deathbed. Uh, the tone has changed. The style. And 2 Peter, while it is a letter, it, its literary style is, is different. It's more like a testimony. And so all of this, to me, does not create great consternation. And it doesn't for many other scholars to say, no, that's not a strong enough argument. Here's another reason why some scholars will argue Peter is late, and that's chapter 3. Turn to chapter 3 of this book. I want you to see this. Why is this so important? Well, number one, the letter says it's written from Peter. So if it's, it's not Peter, we've got a, a letter that's being deceitful or a little disingenuous, right? So that creates problems. Uh, furthermore, if, it's not, if it is Peter, that has a lot of bearing on what's written in this because in chapter 1, he's going to talk about the transfiguration and how he saw Christ and, and all of that implies. But in chapter 3, verse 15, Peter writes, And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our dear brother wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, speaking of these things in all his letters. We're going to talk about that text later. But what is Peter saying? There's this body of Paul's letters that are being gathered and he puts it on par with other scripture when he says it's the wisdom given to him from God. Implication, right? That's very significant. And so some scholars are going, no, 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 no. You wouldn't have a Pauline corpus, a body of literature being gathered so quickly. And <clears throat> there's no way Peter would have equated Paul's writings with scripture. Why wouldn't he? 
fact, as I mentioned there in your notes, our New Testament writers have no problem equating other of their writings with being authoritative as the Word of God. Um, and there's several examples we could give. But also, we note, Paul's work, I believe, circulated and was collected very early on. When Paul writes to the church at Colossae, he says, when you get done with this letter, share it with the church at Laodicea and make sure you look at the letter I gave them. So already there's this happening, uh, sharing letters, etc. I mean, you can imagine, you're, you're over here at Ephesus, you're in Rome, you hear that they've got a letter from Paul, you'd want a copy of it, right? <laughs> it, it, I, I just don't see that happening at all. John, when he writes... Uh, to the seven churches, there's an idea that this is a circular idea, that you're going to rotate this letter around to the, the churches. So uh, to me, that argument is not that strong. And here's another. This idea is that the, the letters is not strongly attested. In other words, uh, often the argument is there are no church fathers that refer to Second Peter. It is true that Second Peter... Uh, uh, took a while to be accepted into the canon, but it was. What I mean is being assumed into the, the writings of the New Testament. It was later, but I think there's reasons for that. And there is strong evidence to show that no, Second Peter was cited early on. I have that in your notes. <clears throat> Green in his commentary says, no excluded book has nearly such weight of backing as Second Peter. And... Don Carson and Douglas Moo in their introduction to the New Testament on the next page says the very fact that 2 Peter was accepted as a canonical book then presumes that the early Christians who made this decision were sure that Paul, or excuse me, Peter wrote it. I believe our author is Peter. Uh, he tells us this. I go with that. Could he use a, a scribe to help him write it? Sure. I have no problem with that. We know Paul used scribes or amuenses, as we call them. So that's no, no issue there. But uh, again, if you pick up any moderate to liberal work on the New Testament, they will argue Peter did not write this book. And these are the major arguments they'll give. Yeah, Rock. Well, yeah, I mean, he is imprisoned. Most likely when he pins us, death is imminent. He tells us that. So I have no problem saying, hey, he's dictating this to a scribe. And the scribe may have had a different vocabulary, a little bit different style in how he wrote. Yeah. So I have no problem with that. The argument that Peter as a fisherman would not have a robust Greek language, that, that doesn't wash. No one will buy that who's done any research. In fact, we now know there are villages in northern Galilee at the time of Jesus whose predominant language was Greek. They were polylingual. They were well-versed. Uh, and there's enough evidence of that. <clears throat> yeah, Paul. <clears throat> it's, it's late tradition. Uh, the argument is that Peter... They were going to crucify him uh, as Jesus would have been crucified. He said, no, no, I'm not worthy to be crucified as Jesus. So they flipped him around and, and crucified him. It's tradition. We have no <clears throat> evidence apart from early tradition that that's how it happened. 
he wouldn't have been beheaded because that's Paul would have. Paul was a Roman citizen. They did not crucify Roman citizens usually. Uh, but Peter was not a Roman citizen, so he would have been crucified or fed to the dogs or lions or bears. Oh, my. I don't know. Right. Oh, well. Yeah. Date and occasion. Let's look at this because this is vital to our. We'll move along here. Look at this date and occasion. If we know that Peter dies in 65, or at least at the time of Nero, that pins this letter then in the mid-60s when this is written, which is about 30 years from the time of Christ. The church is now fairly well established, and that makes sense because in 1 Peter, you recall uh, our apostle is writing to believers that are in modern Turkey, not over in Jerusalem. So the ministry has spread, and I would argue that this book is pinned primarily to Gentile Christians, not Jewish Christians. You say, well, wait a minute. There's a lot of Old Testament references in 2 Peter. Yeah, but there's some implications that our audience are, have struggled with things that you wouldn't expect Jews to struggle with. So I think it's predominantly Gentiles, which is intriguing, because what do we know about Peter? He was primarily, well, we do have Cornelius. He, he led a Gentile to the Lord, but his ministry was focused on Jerusalem for the most part. Remember, he was one of the pillars of the church. Paul and Peter went to head over the, the extent of the gospel to Gentiles and how that plays out. So it's all very intriguing. Second Peter, first Peter, we had false teaching that was standing outside the church. And this is another reason why I think Second Peter and Jude are so relevant today. Second Peter and Jude, the false teachers are in the camp. By Jude, they're sitting at the table. All right. So we and, and isn't that interesting? We're only thirty years out from when the gospel was established. The church is born, and already we're starting to shift. And and there has been a ton of ink spilled on who are the false teachers. What camp do they belong to? You know, I don't really care. Let me give you the characteristics. This is vital to our study. And, and listen to these characteristics. Number one, they are skeptical of prophecy. As Peter pins this book, and again, it, it's kind of like the phone game, or uh, not the phone game. It's, it, it's, well, it's like a telephone conversation in Charlie Brown. You, you hear Charlie speak, and then there's this wah, 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 wah. And you don't know exactly what's been said, but you can piece it together. And that's what we're doing here with the false teachers. We don't have a book that they've written that we can interact with. We can only listen to what Peter and how he's assessing them. But clearly, they are applauding doubt. And dogmatism, is, well, the only thing they're dogmatic about is their uncertainty. They're certain of their uncertainty. Sound familiar? <laughs> it should. It should. Now let me give you another. They deny any future judgment. In fact, that's what I've titled this book. Uh, they're attempting to strip what they appear, think are embarrassing details about Christianity. We got to make this thing palatable to the world we live in today. So don't cross your T's and dot the I's where you don't need to. These things are, you know, let's, let's stop this, this idea that Christ is coming back. We don't know that. And it's just, just, just ease up. And so that's being espoused. Our teachers are also plotting freedom and hold to a truth set determined by each person for himself or herself. Whatever you think is good, run with it. 
I, I wrote in the notes, truth is an infinitely pliable and ultimately unknowable in any objective sense for our false teachers. Again, sound familiar? Um, <clears throat> and then finally, they endorse a lifestyle. This does, you would expect this. One's morals are no better than their theology. <laughs> Thank you, Eugene. Uh, I've got some lawyers in the room, so I'll be careful, but I, I've heard it said you don't pick a, a lawyer that's any higher than your morals. But uh, <clears throat> certainly your theology is going to spring forth in your ethics, isn't it? And we see that that's going to be one of the major issues with these false teachers. It's, it's okay, your lifestyle is what's going to be espoused. I, I wrote here, they've redefined right and wrong in terms of subjective feelings and personal experience. This isn't a postmodern world that Peter's writing to, but it fits very well with the culture we live in today. Um, a couple of you sent me some articles recently of some things that are out there. It's just where we are. And, and the bottom line is, you know, I have people losing sleep over, well, they're, they're, they're embracing this particular lifestyle, et cetera, et cetera. Why should that surprise us? Because the bottom line is the hermeneutics. In other words, how do they interpret the text? It goes back to Genesis 3. What did Satan do? Well, are you sure that's exactly what God said? <laughs> the question in the 1800s, early 1900s was over in inerrancy. The la then the mid-1900s, it was over inspiration. Now it's over knowability of the text. Well, you, I, yeah, it's inspired, but you really can't know it. And so my theology becomes whatever I feel or I believe. And that's the audience that Second Peter is addressing. Peter is very concerned. In fact, so much so that it's interesting, John MacArthur wrote a book on truth war, and the basis of his book is his sermons, his study of Jude. <laughs> and you could do that with Second Peter. So that's where we're headed. And I want you to watch those characteristics because they, they are woven through the very fabric of this whole book. And we'll see this as we move along. Well, the structure of the book is very clear. <clears throat> and it fits uh, epistolary literature. There's an opening, Thanksgiving, body, closing. It's the same thing every time. Except in Second Peter, we have no Thanksgiving. I think that fits a little bit with the literary type of this letter it is it's i mentioned this before it's almost a last will and testament so it's a mixture of a will and a letter that that's being penned uh, peter has no time to lose as he gives these final words these exhortations to the church it's the same with paul's writing in second timothy or yeah second timothy in fact if you want a great study uh, compare the two letters side by side and look at what are some of the major themes. I remember at Dallas Seminary, John Walvard, who was the chancellor, I think, for 50 years, and then, or the president, and then the chancellor. Uh, it was like Moses speaking. He's, he was seven foot, I think, seemed to eight foot. And he spoke like this. And I remember his la one of his last sermons in chapel, he spoke, and this exhortation he gave us, and you're like writing this down. It's like dripping with pearls from the pulpit, right? But it, it, it was you know, preach the word, hold fast to the truth. It's what you would expect, and it sounds a whole lot like 2 Timothy and 2 Peter. We're going to see several 
themes that come through. Uh, obviously, there's a Christology and there's an eschatology, but some overarching ideas that we're going to see as we move through the book. Number one, the epistle reminds us of the seriousness of deviating from the faith. Paul or Peter is very concerned about his audience that they don't are they're not swept away by the false teachers. Guard your heart. Uh, he is going to hit heavy on the cognitive that you know these things. Remember, over here, the false teachers, and I'm not equating you, Richard, with the false teachers, but the false teachers are saying, you really can't know these things. Huh. And Peter's going, yes, you can. In fact, you're going to be held eternally accountable for them. So either we have a sadistic God who's playing games with you, or he does expect you to know them, and they can be known. It's one or the other, right? <clears throat> so he reminds us of the seriousness. He warns us of impending judgment that awaits all of humanity, and these all go hand in hand, and he exalts the value of truth, both in theology and in practice, or duty and doctrine. And, and we'll see that as we move through the book. Any questions on the overview? That is a kind of a blitzkrieg of all that's out there, but I think it's important to know our, our author is Peter. He's writing as he's facing death, and he's writing to an audience that are in peril of succumbing to false teaching, which is no longer on the outside attacking the church. They've now oozed into the very fabric of the, of the culture. They're inside the church. They've got one door in. Jude, they'll be in. Yeah. Mid, I, I, that's why I would argue it's probably mid '60s. But I mean, how We don't. All we know it's imminent, according to what Peter says. I think that the timetable in studying the books is very important. You know, you know the, how Paul's letters are arranged, right? By size. By size, the largest Pauline letter is first listed in the New Testament and the smallest one is last. And so what I tell people when you study Paul's epistles, you should study them chronologically because you can see development and things that are issued. James, the first book of the New Testament that's been, that was written, uh, is very basic in theology because it's dealing more with the practical. But by the time you get to, uh, you move later on, you get to Romans, uh, there's a need for a robust theology as things are moving. And it's not surprising that Peter is dealing more with the end times and the need to hold fast because he's staring death in the face, right? Yeah. Would you recommend the chronological Bible would be pretty factual? Uh, the chrono there is a chronological Bible. It's not bad. The problem is dating the Gospels is a little precarious. I, I think they're all first century, obviously, but um, which one comes first can be debated. Um, I have my theories, but we won't, we won't go there today. Well, let's look at the text. Second Peter, looking at verse 1. Let's just dig into this opening here that we lay out. As you mentioned, it's Simon Peter. What do we know about Peter? We've already, we've already highlighted a few things. Uh, Simon is the most popular Palestinian male name in the first century. So you said, Simon, stand up. There's going to be a lot of Simons. Right? And so it's, it, it's kind of like Mary of Magdala. There are a lot of Marys, too, or Mariams. 
So naming the town that she's from is helping identify her. And I can't help but think it's another reason why he throws in Peter. But also Peter recalls what? When did Simon receive that name? From Christ, remember? I'm going to call you Petros. I'm going to call you Rock. <clears throat> and <laughs> he sunk about like a rock on the Sea of Galilee at one point. Remember that? And, and so I give this to you that... that Certainly the name uh, for the audience, they're going to think through the, the stories of the Gospels and the life of this individual and, and how he served the Lord. He will highlight two titles. <clears throat> the first is he mentions he's a slave. Servant is not a good term. Uh, that's not a great English translation, by the way. Uh, it's more than just someone who helps get the baklava, as I mentioned on Sunday in our study of James. <clears throat> he is a slave. He is owned by Christ, which is extremely significant, right? And he will tell us that he's an apostle. Why is this important? Why is it important that our audience knows he's an apostle? Authority, authenticity, but certainly authority. I mean, the peacock feathers are out, right? The message I've preached to you is accurate. I'm an apostle. In fact, he's going <laughs> to, we're not even out of chapter one. He's going to say, I was an eyewitness to all this. So let me talk about that. These false teachers who think there's something. Uh, they, they didn't minister with Christ. I was right there at his feet. And I got to see something that only three other, two other people got to see. And so <clears throat> that's going to come forth in his writing as he talks about this. Notice he says... Uh, He's an apostle of Christ Jesus to those who the righteousness of our God have been granted of faith. What is he talking I wrote down, observe what Peter shares concerning our faith. What does he say concerning our faith? Let's make a list. What's he say about our faith? <laughs> Meaning what? What do you want to say there? <clears throat> yep. It, it, you notice it's passive voice? You didn't, you didn't extend faith. The faith was given to you to receive it. Right? Ephesians 2, you were dead in sin. I've been to a lot of funerals. I've never seen a corpse get out of the coffin and thank me for coming to the viewing. They're dead. You can't respond apart from the grace of God. So it is God-given faith. What else do you see about this faith? Yeah, the righteousness of Christ. This will be huge. He will come back to this time and time again. What else does he say about their faith? Oh, thank you. It's precious. Precious. Precious is going to be a word. He's already dropped that word a couple times in 1 Peter. He's going to, it's peppered throughout 2 Peter. We'll talk about this more. Uh, is your faith precious? Do you live accordingly? I'm starting to preach. But do we understand how invaluable it is? Um, if you were diagnosed with a terminal degree and I said... Well, we've got a doctor over in Lucerne, Switzerland, who can treat you, but you'll have to 
you know, the only hotel is a five-star hotel and it's going to be quite expensive. You'd sell everything, wouldn't you? How more precious is our faith than our health, right? A faith just as precious as ours. I remember uh, seeing Chung Man in the hospital. He said, I'm ready to go. Let's go. He says, because I know my Lord and I know what awaits. And he understood the preciousness of his faith. It's a, there's another, and someone said it, it's like ours. Did you catch that? Who's the ours? Oh, well, that's debated. Some say, as, as Peter's writing, he says, you have a preciousness one that is like ours being the apostles. I don't think so. I think he's writing predominantly to Gentile Christians, and so he's saying, hey, it's like what we as Jewish Christians have received. You have been brought in as well. And together we are in this. Anything else you notice with this faith? It's foundational. Yeah, it's key. It's what's going to govern them. Peter even says, some of the stuff I'm telling you, you already know, but we need to be reminded of it. (laughs) And that's what we're going to see as we move along. Moo in his commentary on 2 Peter, I mentioned this there in your notes, states the reference to righteousness normally refers to the act by which God puts sinners in a right relationship to him. And we're going to see this. This is going to be highlighted. And so this idea of the faith that we have, boom, you have it as well. He's reminding them, you know, let's let's not forget which team you're on before I take out a club and beat you over the head. (laughs) That's where we're going with it, right? Just a little side note, you have one of the strongest statements of the deity of Christ here in 2 Peter in the the entire New Testament. I want to show it to you. It says, of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Next time a Jehovah Witness comes to your door, take him to that text. It is a special Greek construction called called a Granville Sharp. And what it does, it's taking the two subjects and equating them. In other words, God and Savior are one and the same. There's no debating this. It's very clear. Even the liberal scholars in Greek will tell you, yeah, you have what's called a Granville Sharp, and it's saying that Jesus is God. It is the strong, one of the strongest. There's only two, a couple that are this blatant uh, on the deity of Christ, and this is one of them. It's very powerful. So next time a Jehovah Witness comes to the door, you take them to this text. Say, look at this. Peter says, God and Savior is our, our Lord. But anyway, we'll, we'll move right along. Um, that was free. Well, he says in verse 2, in this continued opening, may grace and peace be lavished on you. He, he, there is a bit of a prayer in this section, and he's, he, he, he kind of seeks the Lord in granting them first this dynamic duo, grace and peace. They're found throughout the New Testament. In fact, I I listed several texts for you where you can find them. It's the heart of the gospel. This grace and peace that you found through the righteousness of Christ, I'm praying that it flourishes in your lives. Don't forget it. Because the false teachers are going to want to undermine this so he said, it's, it's vital to your salvation, but also your stability and growth in the faith. And, and so 
Keep that in mind, because we're going to see that as we move along. And he gives one other prayer in here, doesn't he? That they grow in their knowledge of the Lord. Of all the things to pray for. And I hope you learn the 12 steps. I hope you find a good self-help manual. I, I hope you keep your, your hearts pure. And, and, and a lot of those things are going to be teased out here. But the first thing he deals with is the knowledge of the Lord, the cognitive. I'm not saying there isn't the effective. If our theology is skewed, we're in deep trouble. That's why Paul will spend the first 11 chapters of Romans dealing with doctrine before he ever gets to duty. Ephesians 1 through 3, doctrine. 4 to 6 is duty. If we don't know our theology, we're in, in serious trouble. Bacham in his commentary, this is there in your notes. The knowledge in question is no doubt both a theoretical acknowledgement and a personal knowledge of God and Jesus Christ. The reason for our author's emphasis on the fundamental Christian conversion knowledge and its ethical implications is the danger of apostasy through hedonism, really, which his readers are facing. And Moo states down at the bottom, knowing God does, does mean having a warm, intimate relationship with our Creator, but it also means understanding who He is with all its implications. It, it unites, and Moo says it's our head and our heart. They go hand in hand. I, I challenge you this week. Pray, Lord, help me to know you better. Pray that for one another. Um, my desire, my prayer for us as a group, I prayed it this morning as I sit in the parking lot out here thinking, this is crazy, we're in this weather, but it's all right. Here we are. I was praying, Lord, my prayer for us as a group is that we will know you better these next several weeks in our study of Second Peter. Of all the things, a guy is on his deathbed, apostle of apostles, right? I mean, he's, <laughs> he's seen Lazarus raised from the dead. He was on the Mount of Transfiguration. He saw his mother-in-law healed, which was a bummer, I guess. I don't know. He, 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 he walked on water briefly. And he said, of all these things, I want you to know the Lord. I want you to grow in that. That is my desire for you. As you grow in the rich knowledge, and this is going to be key to the book. I'm look at verse 8, showing you my cards for next week. For if these things are really yours and continually increasing, they will keep you from the coming ineffective and unproductive in your pursuit of what? Knowing Christ. There it is. And then one more. Look at chapter 3. We looked at this before, at least 15 and 16. But look at 17 and 18. Therefore, dear friends, since you've been forewarned, be on guard that you do not get led astray and fall from your firm grasp of the truth, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So as we journey through this book, Peter is seeking that there is an anchor and when the, the false teachings come crashing in and our culture comes crashing in and says, you know, let's don't be so dogmatic. You know, it's okay to, you know, we can have various lifestyles. We all love Jesus. Let's just coexist. Peter says, careful. You got a faith that was God-given. It's very precious and you need to guard it with your life. And the way to do that is to grow in grace and, and, and truth and, 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 as he mentions, in peace 
as you learn to know our God greater. Yeah, John. Yeah, and that is a great question, and we're going to come, I promise we'll come to that as we study this book, because the Christology is going to play into this, about uh, if you're going to undermine the faith, undermine who Christ is, and that's what's going to happen here as we go through. So great, great comment. Well, let me pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the time around it. We're looking forward to our study of Second Peter, just these two, first two verses set a scene that, uh, Lord, it's our desire that we get to know you better. And that is our prayer as we move together through this book. In Jesus' name, amen. For further thought, there is a, a, a last page, and I apologize, they, they printed this front and back. I don't like that, but uh, the last page is, is that's free. If you want to work on some things during the week, that's there for you. We also have a blue sheet that's at the back table, and it's just some resources on Second Peter if you want to do further reading. Uh, that's not required. I will not give you a test over it. Thank you, Vanna. Well, the Lord bless you. There's no rush to leave, but I know some of you have to get to work. There's more coffee, but uh, thanks for coming this morning. Looking forward to our study.